invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Genesis chapter number 12 this morning. Genesis chapter number 12. So I'm pretty stoked as we're starting a new sermon series. Uh, we got through the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and Michelle, you just reminded me I need to dismiss children through the third grade to Children's Church. So any kids who want to head out to Children's Church are welcome to do so now uh, with Michelle. Uh, but we finished our, our, the first part of our series in Luke. We, we looked at the first nine chapters, the Galilean ministry of Jesus, and in the future, we'll pick back up with, uh, with the journey to Jerusalem. But I wanted to take some time over the next several months to go through the life of Abraham, uh, Genesis 12 to about 25. I don't know if you remember this, but last year we looked at Genesis 1 to 11. We're coming back, picking up with Genesis 12. It's a really long book, and I didn't think that you all wanted to be in the book of Genesis with us for like eight years as I go verse by verse and word by word through it. So it seemed appropriate to break it up. So we're picking up with that this morning. So Genesis 12 is where we will be today. Let's read our text. Follow along as we read the first nine verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, that's his name before uh, later on God changes his name to Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, that is your clan, okay, and from thy father's house, immediate family, and go into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I'll bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their substance they had gathered, and the souls they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land, unto the place of Sychem, also known as Shechem, unto the plain, or the the, the Hebrew word, the oak of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west, And Ai, that's the city that we hear about later on in the book of Joshua, on the east. And there he built an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed going on toward the south into the Negev, is what the the region is called. So I don't have a whole lot of hobbies, but probably one hobby that I do have is I love books. All right, Any other bookworms out there? Okay, there's like four of you. Okay, Rachel likes books. I do too. That poses a problem because we are running out of space in our bookcases for all the books that she likes, all the books that I like. But really, of all the genres I like to read, okay, I like reading theology, of course, and commentaries and stuff about the Bible. But I also love reading about history. I love history. I love a good history book. Uh, But more than that, probably the genre I enjoy the most is biography. Here's why I like biography. Biography takes sort of the uh, events of the past and it brings them to life. A well-written biography, it's almost like you're standing in the room with John Adams. You can almost hear what his voice sounds like and see what it is that he's doing and get a sense of his personality. Right now, reading a book called The Team of Rivals. It's going through the, the cabinet of Abraham Lincoln and you almost get to understand the personalities of Salmon P. Chase and, 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 and uh, Seward and Lincoln and how they interact and how they fight with each other. It's really interesting, insightful stuff. See, biographies will take, remember history? You get to learn all of those dates and places and names, and you're like, hey, the 1776, and then this other date, and then this other date. And you, they're just boring. There, there's no like, rhyme or reason to it, just dates and places and names. 
What I love about biography is it takes those dates, those places, and names, and it puts life into them, and it's so fascinating. The past is so interesting, right? Um, biographies will take sort of the, the granite statue of someone from the past and will turn them into flesh and blood. It's almost like that weird movie, The Night at the Museum. Anybody see that where the, all the characters in the museum come to life? Biographies will do that for us. You get a sense of their character. You can imagine the timbre of their voice. Stand by side by side as they issue orders under gunfire. Well, one of the things I love about the Bible is that when the Bible gives us biographies of various individuals, it really gives us an honest picture of who they are. It does not present us these austere granite statues that gaze down upon us from these big pedestals on the city square. No, it gives us individuals who are very much like you and me. In fact, in the book of James, James says that Elijah was a man of like passions like you and me. The guys in the Bible are like you and me. They're not like these these Superman Christians running around with their cape and just blasting the enemies of God and never sinning. As we go through the life of Abraham, we'll find out that Moses does not give us, uh, does not memorialize Abraham in granite. Right? He does not give us a photoshopped portrait where everything's just perfect. This is not a deep fake of, man, this is just perfection. No, Abraham has his flaws. Abraham makes mistakes. Even next week we'll see him not trusting God, going down to Egypt. Later on we'll see him uh, sinning with Hagar and not trusting God to produce the son through his wife Sarai. Uh, he's not a perfect man. But he is one that we can learn a tremendous amount from. There is a reason why the Bible says that Abram was the friend of God. There's a reason why the Bible calls him the father of faith and whose footsteps we walk when we trust in Jesus Christ. He's a man of towering faith and confidence in God. We look to Abram as an example not because he's perfect, but because he trusted God. And by the way, that's why we sang the hymns we sang. Did you pick up on that? standing on the promises and the great is thy faithfulness and tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and all I have is Christ, reminding our hearts that that's what we're supposed to do. By the way, I hope as we sing, we're not just mouthing the words. Uh, if someone were to walk into Cloverleaf Baptist Church and see us singing, would they believe God is in their midst? Or would they believe, well, here's some people who go through some religious rituals. That's why we sing those hymns, right, reminding us of that truth. So as we look at Abraham's life, as we get started on this today, overcoming weeks, we're not looking at someone who's an unattainable example, but someone that we can, very, in a very real way, put our feet in his steps through his life. Now, I want to say this also about him before we dive into this text. Abraham's life is both, or Abraham's life is both a mirror and a window. Here's what I mean by this. As a mirror, we can look into his life and we can kind of see ourselves. We can learn lessons from him. In fact, the Bible would call us to do that, that he's an example. The the Old Testament gives us stories that are examples for us. And it is entirely appropriate as we go through this to learn from his life. But we also got to be careful that we don't reduce his life simply to a mirror and turn this into just moral lessons. Because then we just have moralistic preaching, right? Which is just like, hey, Abraham's a good guy. Be like Abraham. Okay, there's part of, that's partially true. His life is not just a mirror, but it is also a window. A window through which we look, and here's what we should see. We should see the glory of God. That's Abraham's life. Both a mirror so we can see how we should live, and a mirror so we can see who God is. Here's what I want this to be. I don't want this to be an Abraham-centric sermon series where we're like, man, Abraham's an awesome dude. But I want this to be God-centered. So we walk away from looking at the life of Abraham, and we realize the God of Abraham is awesome. Right, so it's a, it's a window. What are we going to see through that window? Well, we're going to see the glorious promises of God. God's going to tell a 75-year-old guy who has no kids, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Right. Yeah, right. We're going to see God as he miraculously gives him a son. 
We're going to see God promise to him, you're going to own this land even as he only has a tent, right? Like tents are not permanent, and yet God's going to fulfill that promise. We're going to see God promise, through you, every nation on the earth will be blessed, and we see God keeping that promise, glorious promises. We're going to see God's gracious patience. As I noted, Abraham is not a perfect guy. And in fact, from a human perspective, we'd be like, this guy really messed up a lot. And yet God patient, is patient with him. God, God keeps blessing him because God makes a promise to him. And we see more than anything the gospel promises of God. If we walk away from Abraham's life and we just say, yep, Abraham's a great guy, let's be more like Abraham, and we don't see Jesus, we've missed part of the point. Abraham's life is like a big sign being like, look over here to Jesus. Who's going to be the seed of Abraham? Through whom are these promises going to be fulfilled? And the answer is going to be through Jesus. But here's the call for us today, and we're doing more of a mirror and less of a window-type sermon today. You're going to see more of the example, less of the, the, the glory of God, that we will bring that out. The big idea here today is that the life of Abraham summons you and me to walk by faith, trusting in, in God's promises, having complete confidence in God. These verses reveal to us what that walk of faith looks like. We're going to get these dimensions of faith. So note, first off, Abraham's call. Uh, In Abraham's call, if you want to jot this down beside this point, we see him leaving by faith. Verse 1, now the Lord had said unto Abram. Now, just to pause, that's translated there as a had said as opposed to a said, because we get a little bit of the backstory at the end of chapter 11. We find out that Abraham's dad, Terah, had taken the family out of Ur of the Chaldees. They've gone north up the Euphrates Valley to the city of Haran. So you can picture the the, the nation, uh, the country of Iraq. Uh, Ur is down in the south part of the country near Basra. Um, Haran is north, way up the Euphrates, basically in Turkey. So they, they've migrated up there, and then he's going to swing down the other side of the Fertile Crescent into Canaan. If you, if you want to picture that on a map, I should have put a map up there. I'm sorry, I forgot to do that. Um, but it's giving us the backstory. Before Abraham's family ever left Ur, God had spoken to him. So the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. So God just shows up out of the blue to Abram and gives him this call like, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave and I want you to go somewhere and I'm not telling you where I'm going to go. I want to note a few things about this call. This is an undeserved call. Okay, it's an undeserved call. There's nothing here saying, and Abraham did many great deeds before God and therefore God came along and called him. It doesn't say that since Abraham believed God, God called him. No, the call of God is undeserved. It is antecedent to Abraham's faith. It opens very bluntly with God out of the blue calling him. This would be like you getting a call in the middle of the night being like, oh, hey, you're now the ambassador to Switzerland. Like, I don't even speak Swiss. I guess I don't speak German or French or whatever it is they speak over there. I don't know anything about Switzerland. And boom, you're appointed the ambassador. You get a call being like, hey, uh, we need a quarterback for the Arizona Cardinals. They really stink this year. We think you'd be a better fit than what they have. And so you get a call and boom, all of a sudden you're you're quarterback and you've never even played football before. It's that kind of drastic. doesn't deserve this. Now, a lot of people have thought, well, surely God would not call Abram unless Abram was a really good dude. That's what the Muslims think. If you read the Koran, you find out that they say, well, Abraham first departed from the idolatry of Terah, and he turned his back on idolatry, and then God's like, ah, you've now merited my favor, Abraham. Now I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The Jewish people do the same thing. The Book of Jubilees, which is a Jewish book written between the Old and the New Testament, they say that Abraham kept the Mosaic law perfectly his entire life, even though the Mosaic law hadn't even been given. Uh, By the way, there's several points that he doesn't do that. He marries his half-sister. That wasn't okay under the Mosaic law. He takes on a mistress, 
Hagar, that's not okay. He does a number of things that would not have been okay under the Mosaic law. But both want to say there's got to be something good in Abram that makes God want to call him. The reality is this is a call of pure grace. He was a flawed, fallen man just like you and me. Look back in verse 27 of chapter 11. Uh, Now these are the generations of Terah. Okay, so the way that the book of Genesis is is put together, you get these, uh, they're called toledot, these generations, these genealogies. This one is right in the middle of the book. This makes it the focal point of these different genealogies we get. The life of Abraham is kind of the key point in the book of Genesis. So the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran begat Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. So they're all from this place called Ur of the Chaldees. What do we know about Ur? Well, Ur was excavated in the 1920s, the 1930s. Right in the middle of the city is a big old ziggurat, which is a, basically a temple. On the top of that, there's a, a place where they would worship the moon god. The entire city, the entire civilization was built around the worship of the moon god, Nana, and also known as Sin. Not the bad things we do, but that was one of the names for him. The names of Abraham's siblings, in fact, convey dedication to this moon god. Uh, the name Sarai means princess. That was one of the names for the, the consort of the moon god. Like everything about his family conveys idolatry. In fact, in Joshua 24 and verse 2, Joshua said, Our fathers served other gods on the other side of the Euphrates. Here's the point. Abraham was actually an idolater. It's not like Abraham's off worshiping God like the one lone person who believes in God, and then God's like, man, you're a good guy, I'm going to call you. No, Abraham's an idolater just like everyone else in Ur. And God comes to him and calls him to himself. That's absolutely astounding. It is a, an undeserved, it is a unilateral call. Notice how it begins. Now the Lord said unto Abram. Abram's not the one initiating this. God's the one who's initiating this. Abram's not the one who's deserving it, but God's the one who is speaking. By the way, this is like creation. You know how creation happens? And God said. You know how redemption happens? And the Lord said. It begins with the voice and the call of God. God takes the initiative in calling Abram. Abram does not first seek God. Abram does not first trust God. Abram does not first call out for grace. There's none of that in the text. God makes the first move. As we sang just a minute ago, unless he had loved me first, I would refuse him still. God's choice of Abraham had nothing to do with Abraham. And guess what? God's choice of you and me had nothing to do with you and me. There was literally nothing in us that merited or demanded God to choose us. He's chosen us in him from before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to the adoption of children. It's all God's work. This is not based on Abraham's receptivity, but on God's selectivity. It's just God, right? We're just seeing God's grace just shouted from the rooftops in this, that God's the one who's doing this. You say, well, maybe God showed up in Ur of the Chaldees and called a bunch of people. Like, he invited everybody, and Abram's the only one who responded. Well, God said to Abram, get thee out of thy country. Okay, here's the deal. When we here in the South want to talk about a bunch of people, what do we say? Y'all, right? Y'all. And if there's a lot of y'alls, it's all y'all. But we have a way of talking to a bunch of yous, like a bunch of second-person plural. And then there's you, which is just you singular. Hebrew does the same thing. And this is the individual one. This is not God being like, hey, invite the entire city of Ur to come into Canaan. No, this comes personally to Abraham. This is a personal call. This is the way God works. He comes to us as individuals. We don't get saved in groups. You don't make it to heaven just because your mom and your dad love Jesus. You don't make it to heaven just because you're somehow sort of vaguely part of a church family. 
You enter in at the straight gate as an individual. And my, my question to you is, have you heard and responded to the call of God in your life to bow the knee to Jesus in faith? See, just because you hang out with Christians does not make you a Christian. Just because you come to church on Back to Church Sunday does not make you a believer. It's a personal call for us to enter the narrow gate. But notice this as well. Back to verse 1. I know we're really parking on this verse, but it is foundational. Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. This call is also a very costly call. What God is calling Abram to do is absolutely nuts in the civilization, right? Everything's about the clan. Everything's about the family. Everything's about the extended family. And God's like, Abraham, you're leaving Ur. You're leaving Haran. You're leaving your father Terah. You're leaving Nahor. You're leaving everybody you know. Notice how this begins from the big to the small. Your country, and then to your your clan, okay, the extended family, the tribe, and then to the immediate family. Going from the broadest, which, yeah, that's easier than the immediate family. This is a call for him to give up everything because he trusts God. That reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37. Unless you love me more than father and mother, unless you hate father and mother, you are not worthy of me. Jesus says in in Luke 9, we looked at this a few weeks ago, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The call of the gospel, here's the the paradox. It's absolutely free. You can't earn salvation, and yet it's going to cost you everything. It's going to require that you forsake trusting anything else and trust Jesus alone. It's going to require that you turn from your sin and trust the one who died for your sin. And we see that in Abram's call right here. It's a costly call. So notice what he's called to do, leave. He's to make a complete break with the old life. Now, why does he have to leave? He's living, he's living in a culture full of idolatry. God's calling him out to be a worshiper of Yahweh, a worshiper of the one true God. He's got to leave Ur. He's got to leave Haran. Those are two cities linked by their worship of the moon god. He's to launch out on his own. He's to make a clean break with sin. Can I put it this way? It's repentance. The gospel demands that we repent, that we turn from sin and turn to Christ. And then God says, leave and then go into a land that I will show thee. Here's what's stunning. God does not tell him where he's going. God does not say, okay, Abram, you're going to go here to Canaan, and here's the the plan. I'm going to lay it all out to you. But it's almost just like when you're on the GPS and it's telling you the next turn, right? You put in the destination, but you only see, okay, turn right in, in two miles. That's all that Abraham has is take it one step at a time. Now, why does God do that? Because this is a call to faith. Abraham can't see the end goal but he must trust God to lead him. Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 verse 8 is commentary on this. It says, By faith, Abram, when he was called to go out into a country which he should afterward receive as an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. He's called to step out and to trust God. That's the Christian life. We often think, yeah, we get saved by faith, but you know how you take step number two in the Christian life? By faith. And step number three is also by faith. And every single step from the moment of our conversion till we step into glory is by faith, by trusting God to do what he said he would do. So this is the call. This is the call, leaving by faith. He's leaving everything he knows by faith. If you're going to live this life of faith that we're talking about, if you're going to be a Christian, it requires that you stake everything on the promises of God, on the finished work of Jesus. We get another facet of Abraham's faith, beginning in verse 2. We see Abraham's blessing here. With Abraham's blessing, God makes all of these promises to him that Abraham does not actually experience during his lifetime. And so he has to look for them by faith. So the, the call of Abraham, Abraham's call, 
shows us what it looks like to leave, uh, to, to, to leave by faith. Abraham's blessing shows us what it looks like to look by faith. And verse 2. So it's like, you do this, Abraham, you're required to leave, and then here's what I'm going to do. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Did you notice the word that was repeated in there? It's the word bless and blessing. Bless and blessing. Here's something that's pretty sweet. In the Hebrew, the word blessing and the, the, the name Abraham have some similar sounds. Barak, Abram. They both have that, that bah sound in them. And it's almost like the writer here, Moses, is saying, when you hear the name Abraham, I want you to think the word blessing. Abraham blessing. These are going to be linked together by the promise of the favor of God. Something else you want to note here is how often God says, I will do this, I will do this. Not, Abraham, you do your part and I'll do, your, do my part. This is a unilateral, unconditional promise of God. Later on, this will be formally ratified of what, as what we call the Abrahamic covenant. We get to Genesis 15 and God formally enters into a treaty, into a covenant with Abraham. In, Exodus, in Genesis 17, God comes along and he gives him the sign of the covenant. In Genesis 22, he reiterates the, this covenant. This is foundational for the rest of the story of the Bible. Here's what's going on in Genesis uh, 10 and Genesis 11. We found out about all of the nations that came from Noah, right? the sons of Shem, Ham, Japheth. Genesis 11, we learned about how the nations tried to group together at Babel, and then God scattered them. So we get the nations, right? And there's almost this curse that's on them. Five times already in Genesis, we've seen God curse. So we've learned about the nations, all of the nations in Genesis 10, Genesis 11. Now we get to Genesis 12, and we find out that God is going to work redemption through a nation, through one line, right? That's what's going on. He's going to bless the nations through Abraham, through these unconditional blessings. So let's walk through these blessings. I will make of thee a great nation. Now, this seems pretty ridiculous. Abram, as we find out, is 75. He and his wife are barren. They do not have children. If they could have had children, they would have had children by this point. So something that's physically impossible, God says, I'm going I'm to make you a great nation. Not just give you a kid, but make you a great nation. That word nation is important. Uh, that word that's translated nation conveys a nation with a land and identity and its own political leadership. Uh, he's making that promise to a childless 75-year-old man. I will make you a great nation. This is what makes it, by the way, reasonable for Abraham to say, I'm going to trust God and give up everything. And it's the same way for us to say, why should I trust Jesus alone and turn from my sin and, and give my life to him? Because it's worth it. Right? It's, it's common sense. You don't want to waste your life just pursuing your, your own dreams when you can follow Christ and have eternal joy. I'll make you a great nation. Okay, second promise, I will bless you. I will bless you. God promises to bless Abraham. Now, we see this playing out later on in the story. Abraham, by the time he leaves Haran, already has, a, has, a, has great wealth. He has people who are with him. Right? We see this materially as God makes Abraham an incredibly wealthy individual. But this blessing is more than just for material wealth. Remember all the way back in Genesis 1, God makes Adam and Eve, and he says, you know, they're in the image of God, and then he says, and he blessed them. There was a blessing that God gave to Adam and Eve that then turns into a curse because of the fall. God blesses Noah, even in the midst of the curse of the flood. God had promised blessing to Adam and Eve, and here's what the blessing entailed, partially. You're going to rule over the whole earth. Be my image bearer throughout the whole earth. And that's represented in the Garden of Eden. Paradise is lost when they fall. They get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. In a very, very small sense, what God is doing is restoring Eden to the entire world. 
Right? Here's what, what, what he's going to do. He's they lost Eden in the fall. God's going to give Adam, or give Adam, give Abram this land, which will be sort of a microcosm of Eden being restored as people live under God's rule. And the day is coming when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule and reign on this earth, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and the entire universe will be Eden. So don't lose sight of the big picture of Eden, this place that would be this temple of God, God's people under his rule, enjoying him. It's lost in the fall. Gives Israel the land, right? It's meant to be sort of a, a, a representative restoration of that. They mess up, go off into exile. God one day will remake the entire planet. That's what this blessing is all about. This blessing is about nothing short of redemption for sinners, restoration of Eden. Okay, blessing number three, I will make thy name great. You might think, well, man, there are a lot of people who have probably been called Abraham over the years, right? Like Abraham is looked to by Muslims, Jews, Christians as the father of the monotheistic faith. So there's a bunch of Ibrahims out there and Abrahams out there and Abrams out there. But that's not what he means. He means rather that his reputation would be famous. Again, we get something of an answer to the Tower of Babel. One of the things that the people wanted to do at the Tower of Babel is they wanted to make a name for themselves. Genesis 11.4, they want to go make a city, a tower, and let us make us a name. They wanted to give themselves a famous reputation through human effort. And God's coming to Abraham being, being like, hey, Abraham, what they were after, the Tower of Babel, through human effort, I'm going to give to you by divine gift, a famous name. But there's more to this. This is actually a prediction of royal power. Okay, 2 Samuel 7, God makes another promise to David, and he says, you're going to have a great name, right? This great reputation, this royal authority. You know how this gets fulfilled? Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that the name of who? Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess. This great name ultimately is not about Abraham personally, but is about the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The one who is to be the, the, the object of our affections, the one who is to be our vision, the one who is to be the, the theme of our worship. This gets fulfilled whenever we as Christians bow the knee to the name of Jesus. Do you see how this is a big billboard for Jesus? A big billboard for the gospel. These promises, I'll make your name great. And then we get this next promise, promise number four. You will be a blessing. So not only will Abraham receive a blessing, but he will then be the channel for the blessing. If you wanted to divide these promises up, we've got personal promises in the first part of verse 2. Then the statement, you will be a blessing. And then we see how Abraham becomes sort of the channel, becomes the conduit for God to bring blessing to the world. That's what, what, what his purpose was. You will be a blessing. Now, how did God intend for this to happen? He gets Israel. He gives them this land in Palestine. Okay, think about where Palestine is. It's this narrow neck of land that connects Asia to Africa. All the major trade routes of the world run, ran through, uh, through Israel, through Palestine. The north, the south, the east, the west. All the great empires of the world would kind of intersect there. The Egyptian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. And Israel was meant to be a, a living witness, a living uh, advertisement for the goodness and the glory of God. They were to be a blessing to the nations by saying, here's what it looks like when a people live for the glory of God, when they worship Jehovah. We get a small taste of this with Solomon. Solomon has this glorious kingdom, and we get the Queen of Sheba coming from the far ends of the earth to see the wisdom and the glory of Solomon. But guess what? Israel failed at that. They became like the nations around them. God had to eject them out of the land. They got scattered to the nations. They failed to be that representative. They failed to be the servant of the Lord. 
So in Isaiah, we learn that God says, I'm going to raise up a different servant. I'm going to raise up the true Israel. And who is that? It is Jesus. Where Israel failed as a nation, Jesus succeeds as their representative to bring blessing to the world. That's why we read Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. How? In heavenly places, in Christ. In a relationship with Jesus, we get all the spiritual blessings of God. The book of Galatians tells us that in Christ we become Abraham's seed and we receive all the promises of Abraham. So this is fulfilled in Jesus. Now we get this reciprocal to the promises number five and, and, and six here. Look at verse three. I'll bless him that bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. Notice the blessing is bless them. There will be a lot of people who will bless you, but curse him. There's not many people who will dare curse Abraham. It's a promise of protection. Abraham saw this in his own life. Next week we'll find out. He goes down to Egypt. He lies about Sarah being his wife. The Egyptians are about to run off with his wife, and God brings this curse on them. happens later. Abraham doesn't pull that stunt not just once but twice. Uh, but God protecting him in his own lifetime. We find out about all the kings who come to battle and Lot gets hauled off in, in, in this battle. Abraham comes in with his troops, rescues Lot. God blessing those who bless Abram and cursing those who curse him. Now, it's kind of obscured in our translation, but there are two different words for curse in verse 3. God says, I will curse him that curseth thee. That second word is the word to, that, that basically means to be slight trifling, to basically treat Abram slightly. He says, the person who, who disses you, the person who disrespects, dishonors, looks down on you, mistreats you, God says, I will in turn bind with a judicial curse. In other words, someone does a, a small slight to Abraham and to his people, God will bring divine judgment upon them. This is more than just, hey, you said something nasty, it'll be even. No, small curse, big judgment. Uh, a promise of protection. Think about this. Pharaoh enslaved the, the, the people of Israel. And Pharaoh died in the Red Sea and his entire army was obliterated. The entire economy was destroyed. The Canaanites resisted Israel coming into the land that God gave them. And the entire civilization was wiped out. You know, there's a reason why we don't hear about the Babylonian Empire anymore or the Persian Empire anymore or the Roman Empire anymore. There's a reason why... The Third Reich was not successful in, in what they were doing because they cursed the people of Abraham. Any society, any civilization that mistreats Israel receives the judgment of God. Uh, and we see it over and over and over again in history. Think about Spain. Spain at one time was one of the greatest empires on, in the world. They controlled more of the world's surface than any other nation. And then 1492, right, same year Christopher Columbus sails the ocean blue, the Spanish kicked the Jewish people out of Spain. It was part of the Reconquista, like they're getting rid of the money, like kick the Jews out. They mistreat the Jewish people. When was the last time you heard about Spain doing something on the, on the world stage? Right? There's just a pattern we see through history. But the application I want to make here is, again, ultimately this is not just about Abraham and Israel, but it's about Jesus. Those who reject Jesus Christ will face the eternal wrath of God. You cannot curse the seed of Abraham without receiving the eternal curse of God. Right, there, there is eternity that is at stake with what you do with Abraham's seed, with what you do with Jesus the Messiah. If you receive him and you welcome him and you bow to him, you'll receive the eternal blessing of God. If you reject him, you'll face the eternal judgment of God. And then the final clause here in, the, in this blessing is, In thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, back to Genesis 10 and 11, we saw all the nations. 
They're all scattered. They're all facing not God's blessing, but God's judgment. And God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, you will be the vehicle of restoring and regathering the nations. See this traced out through Scripture, Galatians 3 and verses 8 and 9. We're not going to turn there, but you can jot that reference down. This promise summarizes the entire plan of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. That through Abraham, through Abraham's seed, every nation in the world will one day be blessed. Every nation of the world will one day be redeemed. I want you to see how this works out because this is pretty sweet. Go over to Revelation with me. Revelation chapter 7. The end of the story, we're like, does God actually do this? Revelation chapter 7. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. And my understanding of this text, we're dealing with the tribulation period in the future, right? This time where God is unleashing his wrath on the world before the coming of Christ. And notice verse 9. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no one could number of, notice this, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, they stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So don't, don't lose sight of this. One day the day is coming when God will have a redeemed people from every nation on earth. Even those nations that today, even those people groups today that are completely unreached will one day be reached. Those nations that right now, those those languages that right now do not worship Jesus in their tongue will one day worship Jesus in their tongue. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone gets saved. What this does mean is that God will bless the efforts of missions. The the effort of missions will surely succeed in making disciples of all nations. Why? God promised to Abraham that in him all families, all kindreds, all nations would be blessed. They would receive the blessing of salvation and forgiveness. Now, we're not there yet. Prayed this morning for the Mortensons. They're down in Honduras, making the name of Jesus famous, extending the blessings of the gospel through the preaching of God's word. We've got missionaries all over the world. And maybe God would even raise up, see fit to raise up within our church family, people who would be like, I'm going to go make the name of Jesus famous where it is not yet known. Here it is promised in Abraham. Now, Paul's point was to say, hey, it's not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. It's for the nations, this promise. Here's something I want to point out about these blessings. In Abraham's lifetime, did he see his seed become a great nation, yes or no? And the answer answer is no, right? He has Ishmael, he has Isaac, he maybe saw his grandsons. But he doesn't become anything that we would say a great nation, a superpower. Abraham in his lifetime, yeah, he saw his name become somewhat famous, but he wasn't this great king that God's promising here. In his lifetime, he didn't become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. These were unconditional blessings, but they for Abraham were unseen blessings. Hebrews 11, verse 13 to 16, tells us that Abraham goes out, not knowing whither he went. He says, for those who say such things declare that they seek for a city, right? And they say that he's looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham died not seeing the promises, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and confessed that he was a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. Abraham did not see all these blessings in his lifetime. The blessings were for the future. And Christian, I want to mention that to you because sometimes we get discouraged because we're like, man, God promises me all these blessings and, and all of these, these glorious things, and I don't have them right now. Right now I'm going through pain and I'm going through grief and I'm living in this broken, fallen world. But one day those blessings will be ours. 
One day we will enter into the new Jerusalem where there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more goodbyes, there will be no more tears, no more suffering. But we're not there yet. We're kind of like Abraham where he's living between the already of God's promises and the not yet of having embraced and seen them all. And he saw them, he looked and saw them by faith. That's why I say the blessings of Abraham shows us what it means to look by faith. You can only live the Christian life if you are absolutely certain that there is eternal life. You can only live the Christian life if you're absolutely certain that there is eternal reward. Otherwise, this thing is a complete waste of time. There's no sort of middle ground here. Either Christianity is a colossal, stupid waste of time, or Christianity is true and it's the most worthwhile thing that you can be engaged in. Right? Who would sign up for something that's going to bring persecution, that's going to bring, bring conflict into your relationships? Who would sign up for something that's going to maybe cause you to have to lay your life down for Jesus? It's not about your best life now. It's about the best life to come that's promised. So we see that in the blessings to Abraham. But our final scene here, and we'll see here Abraham's obedience in verse 4. And here now we come to sort of the point that I, wanted to, I made at the beginning. We have this leaving by faith, this looking by faith, this is living by faith. Probably most of us, we have heard the call of God. We've responded to the call of the Spirit and, and come to faith in Jesus. We have the promises of God, but now we've set out. We're taking one step after another, looking for what God has for us in the future. Look at verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. Okay, there's something really cool going on here. The, the first word of God's call to Abraham in verse 1 was leave. Okay, in the Hebrew, it's the word leave for yourself. The first word in verse 4 is the word leave. Just put it into a different form, but exact same Hebrew word. So it's like verse 1, God called him. Verse 4, Abraham did what God called him to do. God said, leave, Abraham leaves. Verse 4. Verse 1, God speaks to Abraham. Verse 4, Abraham departs as the Lord had spoken. But notice there's a little bit of something else going on. God said, leave everything. And Abraham brings Lot along with him. You say, why does he do that? Why does he bring Lot along with him? Well, look back in verse 27 of chapter 11. These are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So there's three brothers, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begat Lot. Okay, so Lot is Abraham's nephew. Verse 28, and Haran died before his father in the land of his nativity. So Haran, this man, by the way, not the same as the city Haran. Uh, I pronounce, I'll pronounce that Haran just to make those dis- distinct. Haran dies before uh, his dad even dies. So here's Lot, who's almost orphaned from a young age. Almost imagine Abraham thinking, I'm going to be a good uncle and I'm going to adopt him. That seems almost an appropriate thing to do in a clan setting. right? He maybe even is thinking... Ah, Lot will be the heir that God will fulfill the promise to. He may, okay, God's promise will be a great nation. Ah, it's going to be Lot. Lot's going to, God's going to do this through Lot. Well, what's going to happen later on in the story is God's going to cause division to where Lot's going to go one way, Abraham's going to go another way and be like, Abraham, that's not the plan. Then Abraham will be like, well, maybe it's going to be through Hagar. And then he has Ishmael. And God's like, Abraham, that's not the plan. The plan's going to be through Sarah, through your son Isaac, and it's going to be miraculous. So I think that's what, what's motivating Abraham to bring Lot along. It's an impartial, impartial obedience. Uh, it's an incomplete obedience. He says, leave everybody. He says, eh, I'll bring Lot along with me. It's going to cause trouble down the road. But here's the point I want to make. It's easy to kind of nitpick at Abraham's incomplete obedience. Here's the point I want to make. Abraham actually obeyed. Right? Abraham actually obeyed. We, when we talk about living by faith, here's the reality I want you to see in verse 4. Faith goes. Okay, faith actually goes. Faith actually obeys God. Faith actually says, God, I'm going to so take you at your word. I'm going to do what you say. 
This is no small thing. God had called Abram when he was down in Ur in southern, southern Iraq. They had moved north to Haran. Terah dies in Haran, and now Abraham is leaving, going into Canaan. He's making a clean break with the past. This was no small thing that Abraham did. This is an 800-mile journey, right, with, without cars or roads or airplanes or any means of modern transportation, maybe camels. But this is a difficult, arduous journey through some hostile territory, through some inhospitable climates. Abraham is only going to do this by faith. You only do something this nutty if you really believe God's told you to do it, right? And so that's what Abraham is doing. So was Abraham's obedience perfect? No. Is your obedience perfect? No. But God does not require perfect obedience. He simply requires real obedience. Okay, isn't that comforting to know that we can please God as believers? If, we're, if we trust in Jesus Christ, as was read earlier, we're accepted in the beloved. And from the standpoint of being accepted in God's family, even when our obedience is like a toddler taking their first steps, God's like, I still delight in it. Like you can kind of go through your Christian life dealing with low-grade guilt all the time, thinking, I never can do enough. I'm never good enough. I never quite perfectly obey God. There's always a little bit of imperfection in my obedience. But can you take comfort in knowing that Abraham's obedience pleased God, even though it was imperfect? No, I'm not saying God excuses the imperfect, imperfection of the obedience, but I am saying that God, by grace, accepts obedience. So Abraham went by faith. Real faith goes. All right, this is probably what James was talking about when he says, hey, show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Real faith acts. Real faith does what God says. But another reality about Abraham's faith here as he is living by faith, real faith goes, but real faith also grows. It goes and it also grows. So notice how this, we get this travel log. He departs from Haran when he's 75. He took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, the souls they had gotten in Haran, in Haran. And they went forth into the land of Canaan, into the land of Canaan they came. And then notice this. Abram passed through the land under the place of Shechem, under the oak of Mori. And the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to him. Notice verse 8. From thence he goes to Bethel and Ai, and then down to the Negev. What is going on with this travel log? If you could plot this on a map, Abraham is starting in the north of Palestine, and he's walking all the way down to the south. He is by faith claiming the land that God has promised. So verse 7, God tells him, Unto thy seed I will give this land. The land is yours, Abraham. Abraham, by going from place to place, is saying, God, I take you at your word. God, I believe you. Even though the Canaanites are still living in the land. So the faith that initially took that first step out of Ur takes the next step to Haran, takes the next step to Shechem, takes the next step to Bethel, takes the next step to the Negev. Abraham's faith is not just one step, he's one and done, but it grows. I say this, saving faith continues. Saving faith perseveres. There are multitudes of people in the city of Mobile who think they're on their way to heaven this morning because they one time prayed a sinner's prayer. They think they're on their way to heaven because at one time in their life, for a split second, they believed in Jesus. Real faith, yes, it takes that first step, and it keeps trusting. It keeps walking. Real faith grows. So this faith grows in claiming the land. But notice this in verses 7 and 8. Two times Abraham does something unique. He builds an altar, and he worships God. Faith results in this worshiping of God. So his faith, his growing faith, both claims the land and claims the Lord. This is for the first time that Abraham calls on God's name. 
This is a, the sig, to signal to the world that I no longer worship the idols of my past. I do not worship the idols of Canaan, but I worship Jehovah. I'm building an altar. This is interesting. Abraham simply pitches a tent that he takes up and he takes down and he moves from place to place, but he builds altars. The altars will be the permanent monument of his faith in the land. There's a pattern here. God makes a promise. Abraham believes that promise, and he in turn worships God. You know what drives our worship? It's the promises of God. We worship this morning. We started off with standing on the promises. We started off with a scripture passage to remind us what God has promised. Worship is our response to the glory of God. And we see that even here in Abraham's life. All the places that he goes to, Shechem, Bethel, Ai, these were all places where the Canaanites worshipped. Even that, the, the Oak of Moray, it literally means the tree of the teacher. Probably a place where a soothsayer hung out and gave people sort of demonic utterances. He goes to these places inhabited by the enemy and says, I'm claiming these for Yahweh. I'm claiming these for God. I take God at his word. This is living by faith. Living by faith. And Abram journeys on. So as we trace the life of Abraham in coming weeks, we will see that faith that began with that first step out of Ur, that's going to one day climb the heights of Mount Moriah. God's going to say, offer your son, your only son, and Abraham will say by faith, God will provide himself a lamb. Abraham's faith was not just that God would give him the land, but that God would one day give him a lamb. That God would one day provide a sacrifice. That God would one day send a savior. I believe with all my heart, Abraham put his confidence in the one that God would one day send to take away sin. And that is the object of your faith and my faith. And you're, if you're sitting here today and you say, there's never been a time in my life that I have repented, that I have broken with my past life of sin and stepped out in faith trusting Jesus alone, God has provided that lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ comes in as the seed of Abraham, as the lamb of God, as the final Passover sacrifice, as the great high priest. And he dies in our place. He is slaughtered on our behalf satisfying the wrath of God, securing forgiveness for all who would ever believe, and rising again the third day, conquering death, demonstrating that his sacrifice was fully accepted by God so that we who are sinners can be forgiven. Now for you, Christian, you've taken that first step by faith. You're walking by faith. Like Abraham, our faith has its ups and downs. We sometimes stumble, we sometimes trip you maybe don't know where God is leading right now. You're like, I'm in a situation. I don't know how this is going to turn out. And we may not, God may not tell us how things are going to turn out. But we can trust the one who leads us. We can say, I'm going to rely on the God, as has been said, that when you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. We could say with Job that though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. We can put our, firm, uh, put our feet on the firm ground of his promises, even when everything else around us seems to be shifting and changing. So here's my question. Are you walking by faith? Have you left by faith? Are you looking to the promises of God by faith? And are you living day by day by faith? Will you trust the glorious God who we look at through the window of Abraham's life? Father, we praise you for your trustworthiness. We praise you that